Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. So we are continuing to talk about uh, the glory of God and the redemption of mankind that we see in the historical account of the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles, ask you to open them up to Genesis chapter 5, or you can open the Bible app, and you should find today's event with all of the notes and stuff. And I'm probably going to get rid of the stool because I need to walk around. Um, That's how I roll. So uh, just to remind you, the effects of the fall, when Adam and Eve ate that fruit, that forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, it had lasting repercussions that affected not just themselves, but everyone who would follow after them. Uh, Romans chapter 5 verse 12 actually says that in Adam all die. In Adam everyone becomes a slave to sin. And the consequences or the effects of the fall were physical pain in both labor and childbearing, broken relationships between man and wife and humankind and God. Creation is cursed. It's not producing like it should. And and I can tell you, I just go to my garden, all the plants I want are struggling and all the plants I don't want, I have to weed away every day. Creation is cursed. And ultimately, physical death was part of the curse that Adam and Eve brought upon us as well. And so we are all slaves to sin and destined to death, and we're going to see how that works out, but also God's heart in trying to bring us back to relationship with Him and restore us in redemption. So we're going to start by looking at just very quickly and briefly Genesis chapter 5, and we're going to look at it to help you understand what it is and why it's important. And some of the, as you read through your Bible, you're going to see others of these uh, lineages. Uh, I just call them the begats because it's fun to say that. Uh, and, and you will see them and, and what do they mean and why are they important and why you shouldn't just completely skip over them. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 5, starting in verse 1, here is what God's Word says. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. Now, it's interesting. I highlighted Adam there just to remind us that the word Adam uh, in Hebrew is actually the same word for mankind. And so uh, Adam is a proper name for a man, and it's also the word in Hebrew used for mankind. And so this verse could reasonably say also, this is the document containing the family records of mankind. But we, it's translated Adam here because it really focuses on the children of Adam, the man. And then we get to verses 3 through 5, and we see the first series of family records. Now, this is from the King James Version, the 1900 Version, and this is why I call these the begats. Because if you grew up in church, especially if you grew up with the King James Version, this is what you would have heard. Uh, Starting in verse 3, And Adam lived an hundred and thirty years, and begat a son in his own likeness, after his image, and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now, if you grew up in church listening to the King James Version being preached, you know that begat means they had a child. He had sons and daughters. And so what is the significance, though, here in Scripture when we see these lineages being laid out? Well, we see that it goes from Adam and Seth, and then it's Seth, and then we see Seth has a son, and and then Seth has other sons and daughters, and he lives and dies. And then the son of Seth, he has a son, and then he has many other sons and daughters, and then he lives and he dies. And so what we're seeing is a family tree But we're not seeing the whole tree. What we are seeing is just this line that begins with one person and it follows one family, one 
part of the family at a time to go up, not through the whole family tree, but just to one individual in the family tree and how we get to them. And so what we really see, every time you see one of these lineages in Scripture, there are a couple that are grand overviews, but most of them are tracing a single line of of lineage to get us to the conclusion of God's plan for redeeming mankind. So who is the ultimate goal when we're looking at the, the fruit of the family tree? Anybody have an idea? I heard Jesus, which means, I think, translated Jesus, right? Jesus, yes, absolutely. We see it. We can see it in Matthew. We see it in Luke, that they actually go back through and trace Jesus' family tree to prove that he is Uh, the successor of King David, and that he meets the qualifications to be the Messiah. So here on the front end of history, we see God tracing a line and revealing to us, this is the, the, the line of people that I'm using to get to my plan of redemption. And so we see that Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness, He lived 800 years after he fathered Seth, and he fathered other sons and daughters. Adam was 930 years old, and then he died. So we see these three things highlighted over and over and over again in this list of begats. The age the person was when they had the child that we're going to follow the history of, the fact that they lived more years than that, And they fathered lots of other children. So when we read scripture, sometimes we get this mindset that there are are only the people that are specifically listed alive on the earth. That's not the case. Adam and Eve had many other sons and daughters. But we're following the line of Seth because that is the line that God is going to use to bring about redemption. This whole Old Testament, every history in it, is meant to bring us down the path of redemption toward Jesus the Christ. And so it's important that we see it and understand it like that. So we have a few men in this chapter 5 list of begats that are significant, that are important to know. Number one is Enoch, verses 21 through 24. It says about Enoch that he lived 365 years and and that he had a son and his son's name was Methuselah. And, And then it says that Enoch, he walked with God 300 years and he fathered other sons and daughters. Um... And then it tells us in verse 24, Enoch walked with God, then he was not there because God took him. What's interesting about Enoch is he is the only one in this lineage, until we get to somebody else, who is listed as walking with God. He had a unique and intimate relationship with God the Creator. And he lived on the earth for 365 years, and then he just disappeared. And in fact, it says that he was taken by God. And so we see Enoch pop up later on in, in biblical history. Uh, he, he shows up, uh, we believe, in, in the end times. We think it could be Enoch, but he's still alive, like just alive, taken up by God. That's just weird, isn't it? But that's what happened. Uh, second man of note, Methuselah. Some of you have heard that name, Methuselah. Methuselah, verses 25 through 27, he's the son of Enoch, but he's also the oldest man recorded in Scripture. And we could say in history, because Scripture is history, and nobody else in all of our historical uh, world has recorded an older person. He lived 969 years. So we kind of go and look at life and think, Wow, just, you know, 80 is a long time, 85, 86, 90, that's a long time. How did he stay busy that whole time? Well, having lots of children, you see, he begat a lot, uh, lots of sons and daughters. So interestingly, when you do the math, when you lay out the birth dates, death dates uh, of these uh, men of note, Methuselah died the same year as Noah's flood. Now, 
We don't know for sure because it doesn't say it could be that Methuselah died in the flood because it doesn't say that he was a righteous man, just that he got to be really, really old. And then finally, a man of note in this lineage is Noah. And it starts this way in verses 28 and 29. Lamech, Noah's father, was 182 years old when he fathered a son and named him Noah. Now, that doesn't mean Noah was Lamech's firstborn and he was waited 182 years. It just means that Lamech was 182 years old when Noah was born. And Lamech says this about Noah. This one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. When Lamech looked at his son Noah, he hoped that Noah would be the one who would be the fulfillment of God's prophecy in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We can see just like uh, Adam and Eve had that hope for their son Cain, Lamech has that hope for his son Noah. We know there's a Messiah coming. We know there's someone who will make things right, who will end the curse, who will crush the serpent's head. Maybe it's Noah. And he, he really is ask, or hoping that Noah will be the one to bring relief, to free mankind from this, the, the curse of Adam and Eve. And then it tells us this at the end of chapter 5. Noah was 500 years old, and he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, it's not saying that in his 500th year, he fathered these three. It's saying, let me give you an update on Noah. Noah is 500 years old, and he's already got these three sons. And so, that's kind of where we're going to leave Noah to begin the next component of history before we pick Noah back up. So he's 500 years old and has three sons. And then we get to Genesis chapter 6. Now, we are not going to be spending, when we do these big stories, we're not going to be spending time to go through every verse. I want to encourage you to read the whole history that's here. But we're going to focus on the verses that get us a clear understanding of what's going on. So first, In chapter 6, verse 3, the world is falling apart according to the first couple of verses. And we see demonic influence in mankind to the extent that demons are possessing men and and encouraging them to to lead women astray. And you've got some crazy kids who are really tall. And at least that's what it seems to be that Scripture is saying. This is a really hard passage in the first part of chapter 6 and the way it describes things. Scholars today argue and have always argued over exactly what this means. Some of you have read the book of Enoch. I don't recommend it. It's, it's not fun. But it tries to fill in the details for this period. I don't know. But anyway, the, the, the gist of it is mankind has really messed up, continues to wallow in sin, And God says this in chapter 6, verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. And it seems that right at this point, God says, I'm going to give mankind another 120 years and then judgment comes. So... In, in the, the ensuing verses, verses 5 and 6, we see that the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. So as we read this, God has already initiated a countdown to judgment, 120 years, and then judgment will come. And then as God continues to look out over the earth, we see this recapitulated, that he is disappointed in what has happened with this beautiful creation. He is grieved by it. And, and not because mankind isn't perfect. He has been gracious, he has been loving, he has been providing. His glory continues to be revealed. But it has come to a point where it is so clear that every inclination of the human mind is nothing but evil all the time. So every thought is perfectly evil all the time. My goodness, if if you've just watched the news a little bit this week, if you've even just... 
you know, scrolled through and seen the, the, what's happening in our world around us, you can see that nothing has changed when it comes to the condition of mankind. When you look in the mirror, when you think about what's in your own heart, you might even be further convinced that every thought is nothing but evil. When we look at the culture around us, we can see that we are still surrounded by and soaked up in evil. We are, we are just awash in a desire for wrongdoing. And then people carrying things out. Crazy, terrible, terrible things. And God looked down on the earth then, and I'm sure He looks down on the earth now, and He is deeply grieved. Scripture says He regretted it. And that, that word regretted, it's, it's not like sitting around and going, oh, woe is me. But, but really, it, it is about um, this readiness to do something different. To change things. To know, not allow things to continue as they are continuing. And when it says that he is deeply grieved by the sinfulness of mankind, it's not talking about he's just sad for a day, but to the depth of his being, this word expresses that God is saddened by our sin. He is hurt emotionally by our sin. And a lot of times we don't think about that when we sin, do we? That when we chase after the things of this world, we are not just disobeying God, but like a loving parent, He is deeply hurt by our rebellious choices. And so we see it here in Noah's time. We know it is still true in our day that judgment is deserved. Judgment is appropriate. And so God says to Himself, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. It is this, this notion, this, this, this clear communication that God is saying something has to change, and I'm going to make it happen. Interesting enough, this is a nerd moment kind of thing. The word for regret and the word for relief are the exact same word in Hebrew. And so the name Noah, which is, oh, that God would send relief, God says, I'm actually going to send a change, but it's not the change you expected. And he's going to use Noah in the midst of this judgment to keep a remnant, to keep a, a, a group of people for himself to set the stage for redemption in the future. And so God is ready to wipe out mankind. He is going to, to remove them and all the wild creatures of the land from the face of the earth. But Noah finds favor with God. So verses 8 through 10 give us a picture here. It says this, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man or in right standing with his fellow mankind. And he was blameless among his contemporaries. A word that really points to he had a right relationship with God. So Noah was both a well-respected man amongst the people and he was in a right relationship with God. And it says this, Noah walked with God. Who was the other guy that we saw in the begats that walked with God? Enoch. It's okay, Adam did too in a, in a unique and special way. But Enoch, we specifically mentioned in that lineage from Adam, Enoch walked with God. What happened to Enoch? He was taken by God. Why? God rescued him from the brokenness of the world. God rescued him from the sin that was awash around him. But Noah... God's got a different plan for Noah. God's got a different use for Noah. But Noah, like Enoch, walked with God. He was in a faithful relationship with God. So we get to verses 10 and 11, which, re er, yeah, 10, excuse me, verses, chapter 6, verses 11 through 21, which reveal to us God's plan. And so uh, we can see that God begins to chat with Noah, and he says this, I have decided to put an end to every creature... For the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. 
Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. This is the whole plan. Noah, I'm going to wipe out everything. I want you to build a boat. I want you to build me a boat. And I want you to make it out of gopher wood. We don't know what gopher wood is. Um, There's no direct correlation to to any known species of wood at this point. Uh, But it must have been substantial. Because God tells Noah to build a big honking boat. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and out. Understand that I am bringing a flood, God says to Noah in verses 17 through 18. Because can you imagine? God says, build me a big boat. And Noah will be like, why a boat, God? Because it tells us it hasn't rained yet. Mist would come up from the ground to water the plants. And so flooding is an unknown thing. But God tells him to build a boat. And I want you to understand why. I'm going to bring a flood. Floodwaters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I, want, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. A covenant, when God establishes a covenant, it is a contract that he agrees to care for someone who submits themselves to his care. And so God says to Noah, you've walked with me. Here's the plan. I'm going to wipe out everybody else, but I want to make a contract with you. If you'll walk in obedience, I'll rescue you. If you will be mine, I will rescue you from the judgment that is certain and coming. So some, some quick things about the ark. And if you're wondering, yes, I do believe, and, and uh, I think our whole elder team and our church would say, we believe in a literal ark, a worldwide flood. All of mankind was wiped out. I actually have a date. If you do the math, the flood happened in 2348 B.C., so if we could get in our time machine and doodly doodly doodly, we could go back to 2348 and that would be when Noah's flood happens, when there's an ark. Uh, what's Noah's wife's name? Joan? Uh, anyway, Joan of Ark? Anyway, oh, oh. The ark, some facts about the ark, a literal ark. It was made of gopher wood. We don't know what gopher wood is, but it was sizable and substantial. It had three decks, three levels, room for all kinds of animals. If you're interested in knowing more about kinds of animals, I encourage you to check out Answers in Genesis. Answers in Genesis has really established an amazing ministry about supporting the truth and historicity or historical uh, uh, truthfulness of the Genesis account for creation and Noah's flood. So uh, room for all kinds of animals, which means there wasn't like every breed of dog on there. There was just a dog. Well, a pair of dogs. And every dog since then has come from that type of dog. Because you all understand, right? We've made all those weird little creatures. They, they should just die in the wild. Uh, they should be like food for frogs. They're so tiny and they fit in your... Right? Why would we make those? Anyway, uh, but... but they, they weren't, there weren't all breeds of animals of, of every kind, but there was one pair of every kind. So felines, canines, tortoises. You get the picture, I hope. Check out Answers in Genesis. The ark was 300 by, by 50 by 30 cubits. What's a cubit? Well, it is a, um, it's a span... And a breadth. It's, it's this uh, a hand span, and, and from the tip of your finger to your elbow, that's a cubit. Now, if you were to join together with your friend and compare cubits, guess what? They would be different potentially. So there's some different estimations as to how big the ark was. Between 450 feet long and 510 feet long, and it was a 74 feet wide or up to 85 feet wide. 45 feet tall or 51 feet tall, just depending upon whose cubit we, we use, right? Um, so, so we have a really tall person and their cubit's longer, right? They, the ark would be bigger. Uh, so, but people who spend time doing this figured out a basic 
size of a cubic, an average size, and those are the basic estimated measurements for the ark. Also in the ark would have been food for people and animals. If you, if you have an opportunity, do encourage you, Answers in Genesis has a life-size ark that you can go and walk through and explanations of the science and the faith that it would have taken to live out this experience. It's a really cool thing. It's a little pricey, but it's worth it overall. Encourage you. And so we see that God tells Noah to build an ark. And then we see expressed in, in the ensuing verses Noah's faith to do what God says. Noah trusts God. Noah obeys God. Chapter 6, verse 22, And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. So Noah begins to build this huge boat, three levels, enough for all kinds of animals and all the food that they and his family would need. And so he continues to just build this ark and, and verse, uh, chapter 7, verses 5 through 7, And Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. It doesn't say he did some of the things. He did a couple of things. He did the things that made sense to him. It says he did everything that God commanded him. We see the faith of Noah expressed in his absolute willingness to submit himself to this covenant with God. And by faith, doing everything God asked, knowing that if he did so, God would rescue him from the coming judgment. Now it tells us that Noah was 600 years old when the flood came and water covered the earth. So Noah, his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives entered the ark because of the flood waters. Now the last time we saw Noah at the end of chapter 5, how old was he? 500 years old. 500 years old at the end of chapter 5. Now here, at the beginning of the flood, in the beginning of chapter 7, he is 600 years old. And so we have to say, historically, all of this unfolded within about a 100-year time span. So we all go, well, that's a long time. Not when you're already 500 years old. That's, I mean, it's a long time, but it's more like a decade for us. And so this span of potentially up to a hundred years is the time it took Noah to build the ark and prepare to trust God. Can you imagine? We struggle to follow God faithfully for a week, don't we? Noah followed God faithfully for a hundred years. Now, it was not Noah's work that saved him. It was his faith in God that saved him. It was his trust in God that saved him. But the work revealed his faith. The work revealed he trusted God's word. He trusted what God told him. And he put his faith in the words of God to the extent that he spent a hundred years building a big boat that didn't make sense. Now, Here's what Scripture tells us then. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open. The floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So Noah and his family, they have spent 100 years building this ark. When people came up and asked, hey, what you doing? They told them, judgment is coming. We're building this boat because God told us to. And you know what happened? Everybody said, ha, no way that's going to happen. But Noah and his family on that 600th year of Noah's life, the second month, the 17th day, all of a sudden their faith was proven fruitful. They got in the ark, God closes the door behind them, and then the floods break loose. It rains for 40 days and 40 nights. Sort of feels like that sometimes around here, doesn't it? 40 days and 40 nights of rain. The result of that 40 days and 40 nights of rain was this. Everything with breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on dry land died. 
He, God, wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth, from mankind to livestock, to creatures that crawl to the birds of the sky, and they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. We see the, the, the thread of redemption of mankind. It walked up through these hundreds of years, finally to Noah, and it it defies our expectations. Lamech thought that Noah would be the one that would free them from the curse of sin. But we find out that everyone else is judged. And Noah and his family, they're the only ones saved by God to continue this path to the redemption of mankind. They were so bad. They were so wicked. They were so destructive. God's only choice, he felt like, was to start fresh with a chosen family. And so Noah lives up to his name, but not in the way that his father expected. He becomes the only hope of mankind as he trusts in God to preserve him and bring about what God has promised. Genesis chapter 8 tells us this. Then God spoke to Noah after all of these days of flood and the water finally recedes and it's the, the ark lands, and it's time for them to step out. God speaks to Noah, Come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you, birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth, and they will be spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah, along with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, came out. You see, even as it's ending, Noah waits for God. He listens to God's voice. He follows God's commands. And so this 100 years of preparation results in his and his family's salvation from the judgment. And then when you add the days up, it wasn't just 40 days and 40 nights that they spent in the ark. They actually spent 377 days in that boat. 377 days. Can you imagine a year and 12 days in the ark. We, I couldn't even, I mean, I love my family. But like, I think I'd kill them after three days in an RV. Right? I mean, this is just, this is the work of God. This is so beautiful, isn't it? To see how faith results in salvation. And it wasn't even, God had revealed that there would be 40 days and 40 nights of rain. He didn't reveal the other 337 days where they would be waiting for the waters to recede. All of it, though, was faith in God. And all of this unfolding, the building, the preaching, the getting in the boat, the trusting God for the year when you thought it would only be 40 days, the getting out when God says, the doing everything that God says to reestablish it. This is Noah living by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 tells us this. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He trusted God's word. When he trusted in God, when he listened to God's voice, when he saw God's provision... He was obedient and walked in it and was rescued from the judgment that the rest of the world was condemned by. And now we see God's promise begin to unfold in the life of Noah. Chapter 8, verses 20 through 22 tells us what starts happening after they get out of the ark. Noah, he offers up an offering to the Lord. He builds an altar and sacrifices some of the clean animals that he had brought in brought as an act of worship. Broughton? Who says that? Apparently I do. I had no idea. So he, he offers up on the, on the altar a sacrifice to God. It burns animals as a sacrifice. And it says this, When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings. Even though the inclination of the human heart's heart is evil from youth onward, so, wiping everybody out didn't fix the inclination of the human heart. It just took God showing how terrible sin was and the judgment that was deserved and rescuing one man. That's all the flood did. It didn't wipe out sin. 
And so we see we still have that same tendency. So God says, I'm never going to flood the earth again, or I'm never going to wipe everything out and curse the ground. Uh, I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. In other words, God promises Noah, things will continue like this until I come and bring final judgment. But God has some standards, some expectations for Noah. He says, I've rescued you. I'm I'm never going to do it like this again. But here's some things I long for from you. And so if we were to read in in chapter 9, verses 1 through 17, God kind of lays out his expectations for Noah and his family. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. Now you'll want to kind of write that down, circle it, and remember that for a little bit later. Because the next story, history we're going to hit is the Tower of Babel. And it directly relates to mankind not following this first command of God to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. Here after the flood is the first time God commands mankind that it's okay to eat not just veggies, but also to eat meat. He goes, all the fruits and vegetables are yours to eat and all of the animals are yours to eat. But I have one condition, don't eat the blood. Don't eat the blood. And who likes the blood anyway? Just people who like blood salt. Anyway, um, veggies and meat are on the table. And then finally, death penalty for murder. God makes it clear, if you kill another human being, you will be killed. That's what I require. I take human life so seriously that you do not get the privilege of killing one another. And the promise is sealed and we're reminded by it every time we see the rainbow. Every time we see that beautiful arch in the sky of all the colors refracting, we remember God's promises to not wipe out the world again by a flood and his commands to be fruitful and multiply. That we get to eat anything that creeps and crawls or grows, just don't eat the blood, and that we should not murder one another And if something like that happens, the death penalty is the right answer. History tells us that Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So Noah's life lasted 950 years. Then he died. Interesting to note, isn't it? We go through the begats. We go through all that list of of men that God records and and the the thread of redemption that he's weaving through history to bring us to Christ Jesus. And yet the, the result of every man's life is what? Death. We still are bound by the curse and will die so really, the whole, the whole story of Noah's Ark, the whole history of Noah's Ark boils down to these three things. Sinfulness. The whole world was filled with sin. And every thought of mankind was always evil. And mankind, by their nature, deserves judgment. But God, out of His love provides salvation by faith for the one who would believe on him. And so Noah's ark and the whole story of judgment is a beautiful picture of the history of salvation and and ultimately what God wants to do in Christ Jesus. Because here's here's where we're at in, in today's day and age. Peter's talking about persecution and he's talking about judgment. He says, if he, God, didn't spare the ancient world but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly. The the point that Peter's trying to make in this verse, in this passage ultimately, is that God will protect those who respond and come to him in faith. But everyone else will face judgment and judgment is sure. For all those who reject the offer of God for salvation. Judgment is sure. Jesus says this. 
For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them away. Those who were walking in evil, those who had not responded by faith to God and to Noah's preaching, they were just living a normal life. Everything was just hunky-dory. And then all of a sudden, Noah gets in the boat. It starts to rain. The next thing you do, you know you're doing the dead man's float, right? And, and, And this is what happened in Noah's day. And Jesus says, this is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. There is a coming day of judgment just as radical as the flood But God has provided a way of redemption and salvation. There is an ark available to each of us today. There is a coming judgment. It will not be a flood, but it will be just as fierce and complete as the flood in Noah's day. But just like God provided a way for Noah's family to be saved, God has provided a way for everyone who will believe to be saved. Because the truth is right now, we live in a rebellious culture that is awaiting judgment. The world around us is just begging for a flood. But since God promised he would never do it that way again, what we see in scripture is that all of those who are continuing in their rebelliousness and their unrighteousness will face judgment and will face an eternal punishment when Jesus Christ returns. And Jesus said, when will that happen? Suddenly, unexpectedly. Everything will feel normal, and then I'm coming back. And that day of return is the day of judgment, and just like the flood washed away sin and washed away all the wickedness of mankind, there is a judgment coming that will do the same thing to all those who continue in their sinfulness. And you might say, well, I'm pretty good. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everything about you is sin-tainted, but you not, are not necessarily as sinful as you could be, right? We agree. Most of us in here, we're not as sinful as we could be, but we are completely sinful. All of us deserve the flood. All of us deserve judgment because Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin, what we have earned by sinning is death and judgment. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, there's an ark that has been built already. But this time it, hasn't, it wasn't built by human hands And it didn't take 100 years. It took 33 years, and it was built by the very hand of God. God loved each and every one of us so much that even when he looked down on us in our sinfulness, he looked down on us in our deserving of judgment, he loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, who lived a perfect and sinless life, and then died on the cross as the sacrifice for our sins. He absorbed and took for us the wages of our sin, and paid for it on the cross in order that he might give us a rescue from the coming judgment. That he might give us eternal life. That he might give us his very righteousness before the Father. You deserve death, but God has built an ark for you through his Son. And all those who will come to Jesus by faith and enter into him and submit themselves to him can and will be saved. What I want you to remember this morning as you think about Noah's Ark is that this is not just a history of long, long ago, something that God did kind of, sort of, and ooh, what a fun nursery story, and let's paint it on the walls for the kids. I want you to remember it applies directly to you and I. It is a cautionary tale of judgment that says God is serious about sin, but he's also deeply serious about rescuing those who would come to him in faith and walk as he asks and do as he lays out and agrees to the covenant 
that we find in Jesus Christ, this new contract that everyone who would believe on Jesus as their Lord and Savior will be saved. What does it mean to believe on Jesus? It means to turn over your whole life to him. Not just to look and go, yeah, he's a nice guy. I'll follow him. But to say, everything he commands, I will do. Everything he forbids, I will avoid. And everything he asks of me, only my entire life, I will give to him. You are a sinner. You deserve judgment, just like everyone on the world in Noah's day deserved judgment. Some questions as to how many people there might have been. Some scholars think there were up to 4 billion people on the world by the time of Noah's ark. Others take the math and go, they actually think there were up to 10 trillion people alive in Noah's day. This was no small thing. This was not just a few bumpkins in the backwater of, uh, of the Middle East. This was a worldwide flood that brought judgment on millions, billions, or even trillions of people. Why would you be surprised that judgment will come again? You shouldn't be. God is serious about your sin. You are a sinner. You deserve judgment. But by faith today, you can enter the ark of Christ Jesus and be saved from the coming judgment and experience real and meaningful life in the presence of God. What does that take? It takes simply a choice. It it doesn't even take a prayer. It doesn't take getting dunked. It doesn't take some sort of ritual where I cross you and hit you or nothing. You can right now, this moment, in in just a whispered prayer to God, make it certain that you have chosen Christ Jesus as your Savior and you will seek to follow after Him as the King of your life from here on out. It's that simple. Now, would we love to pray for you if you make a choice like that? Yes. Would we love to know that you've made a decision to follow after Jesus? Absolutely. We would love for you to follow after Jesus in obedience and be baptized. If you've never been baptized, it's time to get wet. You can call this the summer of Duncan. And, and man, we'll, we'll, we'll do some baptisms this year. Do we want you to do Bible study and pray? Yes. Do we want you to come to classes? Yes. But that's down the line. Today, get in the ark. Come to Jesus and turn your life over to Him. And know that you are rescued from judgment. Because God's plan, even as He looks out over all of us, even as He looks out over our brokenness and our shame and our sinfulness and our rebellion, His plan is to reveal His glory and to redeem or save or rescue all those who would come to Him by faith in Christ Jesus. So, this Memorial Day weekend. You might have some downtime. You might have some time off of work. Get in the ark this weekend. Take that downtime to really ponder where you stand with Christ. We all are sinners. We all deserve judgment. But there is an ark with an open door that will rescue us from judgment and give us new life for all who will enter. So this morning, I want to invite you just to pray with me. We'll say a prayer to ask that God would give boldness to those who need to choose the ark. And we'll say a prayer that hopefully helps all of us reiterate our commitment to the covenant that we're in to follow after Christ Jesus faithfully and to trust Him for all that He has for us. So let's pray together, brothers and sisters. Father God, we thank You so much for today. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for this history that you've recorded for us. We lament and we grieve that our world is evil and broken once again. We watch the news and we are saddened and we clearly see that we are no better than the people in Noah's time. We clearly see that every inclination, every thought of mankind is to selfishness and evil. And so this morning we recognize that we live in a culture ripe for judgment. 
and that each of us is part of that culture, each of us as sinners in our own right, we deserve judgment as well. And so as we, as we see this around us, as we see this in ourselves, may we recognize our need for salvation. Father God, thank you for giving us a rescuer. Thank you for building an ark for us by your own hand and your, the, the, the faithfulness of your Son. And this morning, we pray together that all of us would be bold enough to abandon the ways of this world, to cast off our rebellion, and to come into the ark of salvation that is Christ Jesus, that we might be saved from the coming judgment and that we might walk with you in faith, knowing that you will provide, knowing that you will keep us, knowing that our eternity is sure and secure, if only we will live within the ark that is Jesus. And so this morning, we both beg for and celebrate your rescue. We thank you for setting the stage for us to be kept from judgment. Help us to have a tender heart to the world around us, not to throw stones at them as they wait for judgment, but instead to invite them into the ark, to invite them to join us in this surety, in this salvation, in this rescue that you've provided. Lord Jesus, thank you for being our ark. Thank you for living a perfect, sinless life and then dying as the sacrifice for our sins. Thank you for taking the wages of sin on our behalf that you might give us the gift of eternal life and freedom from the judgment that is to come. Open our eyes to see the brokenness. Open our hearts to feel our need for salvation. And ordain our footsteps to bring us into the ark that is you, Lord Jesus. In your precious name we pray this morning. Amen. If you have questions, if you want to talk to someone, grab anybody in the church. And then if you grab somebody and they're like, I don't know how to answer that, then the two of you come together and find an elder or find a teacher and ask again. If, if that person can't answer it, then we're going to go straight to Scripture and we're going to find answers. But don't leave today without knowing where you stand regarding your salvation and whether or not you're in the ark that is Jesus.